Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor Live. I am really excited about my guest tonight, and I want to welcome all of you and say you're in for a treat. We've got a heck of a show coming up. So let's get this show on the road. No sassy stuff. Let's do this. Yeah, baby. That's for you, Mark. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I have the world champion wrestler, the Olympic champion wrestler, the NCAA champion wrestler, and the U.S. Open champion wrestler, four times U.S. He told me how to do this, so I'm going to do this before I bring him on. Four-time U.S. champion wrestler, three-time Oh, I cheated. I wrote it down. NCAA champion wrestler, two-time world champion wrestler, and one-time Olympic champion wrestler. This guy is even tougher than Radio Free Mormon and the Backyard Professor combined. Let's bring on my wonderful guest, Mark Schultz. Bravissimo, bravissimo. The crowd roars. I don't have that noise of the applause, Mars. <laughs> that is the greatest intro in podcast history. Oh, you are so gracious. Say that again. I can I... watch that uh, a hundred times. Oh, well, okay. Now, now my audience heard that. I have the world champion wrestler here saying my intro is good and worth watching. I, there's a lot of people who say they don't like the intro. So oh, what is oh, they're idiots. Oh, <laughs> careful, Mark. Careful. Of course, then you can handle them. <laughs> I'll take care of them. Oh. <laughs> Hi, Nikki McBee, Doug Vincent, Radio Free Mormon. Oh, hey, Radio Free Mormon says we can take you, Mark. So I guess it's a wrestling match. What the heck? But oh no. Gonna, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna I'm going to jump in there real quick. And before you can put me in any kind of a move, I'm going to let Radio Free Mormon take over. So. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is he on? With you? Is he on? Yeah, yeah, he's here in the chat. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Hey, hey, RFM. How's it going, he, buddy? He loves you. Doug Vincent, Radio Free Mormon. Bobo lover, Bobo lover, and Doug Vincent, my buddy. Nathan Peterson, how are you, my friend? <laughs> <laughs> and Dan Vogel's in the house. Tim Rathbone, Gail Caps. Oh man, all of my favorite wow. people, man. Woohoo! We've got a full house here, Mark. Wow. This is awesome. That's incredible. All the big hot shots. So, 
my audience, <laughs> I present to you Mark Schultz. We have been having an absolute ball planning this. Uh, but before we start, Mark, really seriously, I do. This will be the only serious moment in the whole show because Mark and I have been laughing for hours, man. We just, we hit it off like this. We're having too much fun. It's illegal. But uh, we both owe it to our podcasting partner, friend in crime and, and expose of crime, et cetera, John Dillon. Dillon or Dillon? I've always called him Dillon. John DeLynn, thank you so much for putting us in contact with each other of uh, Mormon stories. Um, here, here's my impression of John DeLynn over the last couple of years, Mark, and you can tell me what you think. Now, you've been on his show. That's how I saw you in the first place. But uh, I know DeLynn has taken a lot of criticism, of course. That makes sense. I mean, I get criticized, too. I mean, beloved me, beloved RFM, you get criticized. You! You know, but uh, I've noticed something about John DeLynn's show that just there are days at work where I have to be in the truck a lot driving. And so I, I look up uh, his podcast and listen to him while I'm driving. I don't watch him, but I listen to him. And DeLynn has some sensational programs with excellent guests. And that is how... <laughs> I actually ran into you. I was I was getting ready to be on the road for a couple of hours, and I get looking through Delin stuff, and I go, Mark Schultz, Mark Schultz, who's this guy? And oh, <laughs> world champion wrestler. And I go, I asked myself, Mark. I said, How is it that John Delin gets such world class people on his show, man? So I got to listen to part of the podcast, and then. I noticed your name in the comments on some of my videos. So I really sincerely need to ask you. I mean, I'm so appreciative. I'm grateful. I'm a little starry-eyed with you here on my program. Why do you watch my videos? Because you get right to the point. There's no BS, and you keep your eye on the ball. And when I like to learn something new, I like to learn really fast. And you just get right to the point. And I, if you were my professor in college, I, I I always did really good in classes where I liked the professor. He had a good sense of humor. He didn't BS. He didn't. He just got to the point. I'd be a straight A student in your class for sure. I know I would. I would be honored to have you as a student anyway. So we'll do that. Yeah, we'll we'll do some we'll do some podcasts together. Hey, yeah, yeah. we've got people we want to talk to together. So that oh, Doug Vincent, thank you for the uh, in honor of your brother, Mark. Oh, oh, thank you. That is so cool. Thanks, Doug Vincent. Doug Vincent's one of the coolest guys I know. He is something else. I'm not supposed to tell him that it'll swell his fat head. So. <laughs> anyway, so Mark Schultz, um, you're my age. Yes, exactly. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, we're let's not tell anybody. <laughs> no, we're 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 to the point to where we can say we are 29, and we've been holding there for decades. That's right. <laughs> I've been celebrating my 29th birthday for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, baby. I'm going to say, yeah, me and Mark Schultz, we're, we're the same age, 29. We're there. 
that's the level of maturity we'll never get past. Mm-hmm. So um, you have quite the story. You have quite the life experience that is, I mean, everybody that goes through high school, you know, we, a lot of us, most of us go through sports or else, or else they're real good academics. And I was neither real good at neither, but, but I did okay. Um, you, how? I, I mean, you dominated the sport in the 1980s. How did you get into wrestling? What's your story there? Okay. Well, I was a good athlete when I was in elementary school. I, I set a bunch of records and stuff, but my parents put me into school a year early. So I was always kind of small and young for my grade. So in uh, the eighth grade, I went over with my brother to wrestling practice. He was wrestling and I wasn't, I was doing all different sports. And this coach showed me a backflip because I could teach you a backflip in five minutes, which he did. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. So I thought, you know, if I could, that, that got me into gymnastics and I became in two years, I became the Northern California age group all around gymnastics champion. And it was a great skill to give me athletic ability. I mean, gymnasts can do anything. They can do parkour and break dancers better than parkour and break dancers. And, but it wasn't giving me the confidence. I knew I needed to be happy with myself. And then one day it occurred to me, you know, if I could just beat up everybody on earth, I could be happy with myself and live with myself. So I started searching for the best martial art. And we didn't really know back in 1976 which the best martial art was. We were watching Bruce Lee movies. We were watching uh, Chuck Norris. We were reading Black Belt magazine, searching for the true one, the one true martial art. And then uh, I couldn't find a Bruce Lee studio, but I watched his movies and he was beating up like 20 guys at one time. And I thought, if I know what he knows, I could at least beat one guy, my brother, Dave. So, <laughs> so I didn't, I couldn't find a Bruce Lee studio up in Oregon. So I started this Chuck Norris style martial art called Tang Sudo. And my brother who had been wrestling for several years now, came up for my 16th birthday and said something really disrespectful. And I thought, I'm going to show him who the boss of the family is now with my four months of Tang Sudo training. And so we went out in the front yard and I took a swing at him and he double egged me and got the mount and just turned my face into raw meat. I mean, <laughs> I was so humiliated. I slept in the car that night and then I thought, Screw tanks, I'm going after the wrestling team. And so I did. I went after the wrestling team right away, and I wasn't very successful. I was only I was 130 pounds my junior year, and I was four and six. And that was my record halfway through the season. And then the coach he kicked me off the team because I wasn't good enough. And I complained to the principal, and the principal told the coach, look. Coach, you created a challenge match system 
to make the team. And Mark has went one under your system, and then you kick him off. It's not fair. You have to put him back on the team, which he did, but it ruined the relationship for me going to the principal. Uh And I couldn't wrestle for him anymore, so I transferred back to Palo Alto High School. And coincidentally enough, my gymnastics coach was also going to be my wrestling coach. And I went... Yeah, and uh, I actually submitted his name to be inducted into the California Wrestling Hall of Fame. His name's Ed Hart. Anyway, uh, I went, we had my senior year, between my junior and senior year, I grew 30 pounds from a 130-pound junior to a 159-pound senior. And we scheduled three tournaments that year. Um. I forget the name of the first one, but I broke my toe and I couldn't go. So I, I the second one was the Alice Al tournament. I lost my first match and I was eliminated. And then my third tournament, I took third. And that was the only experience in tournaments. I well, 16 team tournaments. These these were all 16 team tournaments. And then at the end of the year, I won the league, which was nine schools. That was the first time I won a tournament in high school. And then I, that qualified me for the region, and I won that, and that was 20 schools. And that qualified me for the Central Coast section here in California, and that was 90 schools. And I won that, and I was named the Outstanding Wrestler. And then I went to state, and the guy that I beat in the finals of the Central Coast section was the defending champion of the Central Coast section, Joe Guillory from James Lake High School. And he got beat first round at state. And I thought, man, these are really tough guys. Uh, and, but I, I was studying this Eastern Indian philosopher named Jiddu Krishnamurti. Have you ever heard of him? I have. He just changed my life. He really did. And I, I, used his uh, teachings to try to keep my head on and not freak out. And I won my first match barely against the guy that was fifth in state. And then the next match I had was against the number one ranked guy. And I was losing with 10 seconds left and I got an escape to go into overtime. And then I caught him with a banana split in overtime and, and I beat him and that put me in the semifinals. And the guy took me down, rode me the whole first period, second period, I had this move the Stanford wrestler named Bob McNeil showed me called I called the Bob McNeil side roll. I caught him with one and I put him on his back and he's had to fight the whole second period to get off his back though. He was exhausted and he couldn't get away for the third period. So now I'm in the finals and the guy takes me down right away and I get away after a minute and then he takes me down again right away and I get away right at the end of the period. So it's four to two second period. I catch him with a Bob McNeil side roll for two and now third period, all he's got to do is escape, and he's the state champion. Well, he stands up, breaks my lock. I reach down, grab his hand, leg, and I hold on for dear life. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, this could be my last match ever. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do if I don't win this match. I, my plan was to join the mili- join the Marines, you know, and go and meet new and interesting people and then kill them. So I was. <laughs> I did something I had never done before. I, As soon as my cardio recovered, I did a back play with a single leg, and miracle upon miracles, he lands on his back, and I slapped in a half Nelson, cradled him for three, and I won the state championship after 16 months. It was, it was, it, it was, it was such a miracle. It was like the, it was the catalyst 
the catalyst theory for me to believe in God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No kidding. Okay, so so I, I know later on you joined the church, but I have a question that RFM told me to ask you. Uh, if you were to wrestle the president of the Mormon church, Russell M. Nelson, would you prefer do, using a half a Nelson on him or a full Nelson? <laughs> you know what I do now when I watch Russell Nelson on, on, uh, on TV? I just visualize him in a singlet and all of the uh, respect just falls to the floor. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that here in a little while. You, you have a, Man, you have a fascinating story when it comes to uh, your, what do I call it, Mormonism career. Uh, we've all got one of them, so that that's going to be very interesting. I'm trying to put up a couple of these comments yeah. while I'm talking mm -hmm. to you, but Doug Vincent's laughing like crazy, so he's allowed to. He did contribute in your mm -hmm. brother's honor, so way to go, Doug. Mm -hmm. So uh, you... This is my... Oh, there! Hey, show that again. What this, is my collect, this is a collector's item now since we dropped the program. Oh, BYU wrestling shirt. Yeah, we'll talk more about your BYU career. Head coach <laughs> at BYU, if I remember correct. Yeah. yeah. So, so you, uh, you and your brother together, Dave, had a unique accomplishment that only one other brother pair in history has ever had. Tell us about that a little bit. Well, the two other brothers, they're both Russian. Oh. Dave and oh. I are the only Americans to win the Olympics and the world championships in wrestling. Together. Together, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we didn't, he won in 83, Worlds in 83. We both won the 84 Olympics. And then I was the only 84 Olympic champion to win the 85 Worlds. And then I won the 87 Worlds. So what happened at 86? Did you wrestle during I, I did wrestle. I made the team. I made six world and Olympic teams in a row. But I had a lot of financial difficulties. And I had this guy that take to take advantage of me. And he was, he was just trying to rob me, basically. And I, it became such a distraction. It just it just distracted me so much. I I, I wasn't mentally there you got to be when you're wrestling at the world-class level you got to have all engines firing and i just didn't have one firing i guess but yet you did make a comeback in the 87 and yeah you, you trounced and that is so <laughs> awesome man i, I am <laughs> i am in the greatness of presence here <laughs> the presence great. experience 87 <laughs> was a great experience they yeah. uh I, after the after I won in '87, they put me in the drug testing room because they drug test all the champions, and I'm in there with this North Korean who just won, and he had an incredible match. I mean, this guy was great, and it just they said to us, "You can have water, juice, or beer." Well, we just won, so we're like beer, of course, you know. So we're <laughs> drinking and drinking like crazy, and we can't speak each other's language. But 
every time he says something, I laugh my ass off. And every time I say something, he laughs his ass off. And we and they ask us, are you ready to pee? And we're like, no, no, we need more beer. And so we're like holding it in. And finally, we couldn't hold it in anymore. And, we st- and we're drunk now. And now we're stumbling around trying to pee in this cup. And we're getting it all over the tester's coat and on the floor and on his hands. <laughs> Dude, you're awesome, man. That's hilarious. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, here's here here's a joke from Boba Lover for us. What was the vegetable wrestler's favorite move? An artichoke hold. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right, that's it. That's it. Who is that guy? <laughs> you know, that's as bad as the rope going into the bar. And uh, the bartender saying, "Hey, are you are you a rope?" And the rope says, "I'm afraid not." <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, I, I apologize. That has nothing to do with tonight's show. <laughs> Hold on, we've got a comedian with RFM. Maybe he'll come up with something. <laughs> oh, here we go. RFM has something. The word the. Gandhi came into order for diversity and inclusion. Nope. Diversity and inclusion. <laughs> I don't yeah. get that. I don't know. The RF <laughs> RFM is beyond both of us with intelligence for jokes that neither one of us will get. Hey, uh, Dan Vogel says, talk about getting pissed. Yeah, we'll get there, Dan. We'll get there. <laughs> He's talking about the drug test. Oh. <laughs> about getting pissed yeah yeah that was it all right so hey um let's let's kind of change gears just a little bit yeah we're gonna get to that byron rodriguez byron rodriguez wants us to know he wants to know what happened with the mormon church we're getting there we'll get there we'll talk about that we're gonna have like 10 shows in fact we're gonna co-host shows together and (laughs) people that uh mark knows so I think one of the, I mean, not to take away from your life is wrestling, of course. And yet. It wasn't just wrestling. It was gymnastics, wrestling, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And yeah, you've got some martial arts. Yeah, yeah. I've studied a little bit of uh, Jeet Kune Do. I got just dangerous enough with the nunchucks to beat the hell out of myself. (laughs) (laughs) I could bruise myself real good, man. I like the sticks. Yeah, I got arrested for one of, owning one of those once when I was a kid. Yeah, I loved the sticks. That was my favorite weapon. So, so um, yeah, the Gracie brothers. Tell us about uh, Vogel brought up the Gracie brothers. You have jujitsu experience. Yes, I had one. You were a black belt. Yes, I had one of uh, the only two non Gracie family member black belts as my jiu-jitsu instructor. When I was at BYU, I was the assistant coach to Alan Albright. And uh, I'm sitting at my home one day and I get a phone call and it's this guy goes, this Mark Schultz, the Olympic wrestling champion. I go, yeah. He goes, the greatest jiu-jitsu fighter in the world is in town. Do you want to fight him? And I said, what are the rules? And he said, he's trying to intimidate me. That's what I hate about this. And he goes, there are no rules. I'm like, really? No rules? What, are we going to commit a homicide? 
gouge each other's eyes out, bite each other's throats out. So I wasn't going to let him punk me. And I said, you tell him to show up at BYU a week from Thursday because I had to go to the NCAAs and we'll commit a homicide or whatever. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but I couldn't focus like that whole week because I don't know what's going to happen. I've never been challenged like this before. And so the day comes, I walk in the room. It's Hicks and Gracie, the greatest jujitsu fighter in the world. And he said, what I do when I fight is I punch, kick, elbow, knee, headbutt, all this stuff. But today we're just going to do submission grappling until one of us taps out. So we, I was like, oh, thank God there's not going to be a homicide. because I really, I didn't know what was going to happen. So we went in the center of the room and I took him down and I had him in a cradle for about 20 minutes. And then my grip kind of grit gave out. By the way, you can see this story. Um, told on uh, a new documentary that was just made about me called Wrestling Demons, of all things. And uh, it's on UFCFightPass.com. You pay like two bucks and you can buy a membership and watch this. And it shows the whole story of how this, this story I'm telling right now happened. Anyway, uh, we went... We went for about 20 minutes. My grip gets out. He throws his legs around me, and he gets me in a triangle. And then I just thought, wow, that is the coolest move, and let's go again. So we went again, and I've been on top of him now for 40 minutes. So I thought, maybe I'll let him get on top of me. So I let him reverse me, and then he just – and me being a wrestler, I brainwashed myself to go belly down. So I'm oh, oh. trying to keep him from – turning me like I'm in freestyle or something. Well, he just starts weaving in this rear naked and he finally gets it. And I tap out again. And then he said something that just made me love this guy. He goes, Mark, you're the toughest guy I've ever gone against. And I just fell in love with the guy. And I found one of his students. He had a student, Pedro Sauer, was living right there in Provo, Utah, of all places, I mean, that's just one of the reasons I believe in God. The coincidences are just amazing. And he, I became a student of his for three years. And uh, nice. then uh, I get a phone call one day from Pedro. And he said, hey, Dave Benito, the national wrestling champion of Canada, is going to fight in UFC 9. He wants to come down to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with our guys. And he wants to wrestle with you. Would you wrestle with him? And I was like, yeah, sure. So he comes down. We work out for like two weeks. And the last day I slam him and he breaks his hand. And I take him to the hospital. And the doctor said, if we put a cast on, obviously you can't fight. But if we put a plate in, you might be able to cover it up and still fight. So he said, put a plate in. So he puts the plate in. And me and him and Pedro all meet in Detroit for UFC 9. And then we're in the press conference and somebody ratted Dave out and said his hand was broken. So, so the doctor comes over to his, takes a look at his hand. And he says, I'm not going to let you fight. And then uh, I, and Pedro says to me, Hey, uh, Mark, I, I know who you're going to fight. I can beat him. I think you can too. So I went over to the promoter, Bob Meyerowitz. I said, Hey, what do you think about me taking Dave's place? And he's, and I swear, he said this, and I quote, 
said, oh, that's a great idea. You're an Olympic champion. When you lose, it'll be even better. I'm like, why do you have to say that? But I said, let me have a chance to think about it. So I'm at, I'm, I'm, he calls me like three, four times during the night, waking me up, all, going, we need a decision. We need a decision. And I'm like, hey, if you guys keep waking me up, I'm not going to be able to fight. You got to let me sleep. And so 10 in the morning, they call me and say, we got to have a decision right now or we're going to get somebody else. So I, yeah. I, I, uh, I said, give me, I said, so I got Pedro and we went down to the, to see the promoters. And I said, give me one more minute. And I went over to this corner and I started to pray. This is my LDS days. Right. And yeah. I, I was praying and I had this feeling like my brother or was like behind me, like telling me I had to do this. So I got up, I told him I'd do it, and I signed the contract. And then me and Pedro went outside. I did some wind sprints to warm up, and Dave Benito gave me his cup and his mouthpiece. And one of Pedro's students was there, and he had a pair of wrestling shoes, and they just happened to be the same size as mine. And so he gave those to me. And the the then at at the there was only two rules in the UFC back then. This is like the primordial days, and they is. The only two rules, no eye gouging, no biting. But they also added a third rule saying if you wore shoes, you couldn't kick. So I decided to wear shoes and not kick because I thought I needed traction for my style. Those wrestlers are always, you know, driving. And so, uh, yeah, eight hours later, I'm in the UFC and, and, I, and I won. And now I'm actually really good friends with, with my opponent. Mim and I became great friends. Oh, that's awesome, man. That's, that's a fun story. I just, I watched that. Uh, actually, I think Nathan Peterson's here in the chat. He told me to watch that uh, ultimate fighting match uh, with Goodrich. His name's Goodrich, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he's a big man, 240 pounds. He was much taller than you. And uh, that was a great fight. Now, this kind of is a good segue into our next section here, because Nathan told me that you were the BYU head wrestling coach. Yeah, right here. When you did this fight. Yes, I was. And uh, it really, I think, shocked the... Uh, the whole BYU community because, you know, I'm a faculty member and here I am turning God's shit out of this guy. <laughs> Blood all over. Yeah. So they, they put a picture of me on top of my opponent on in the front cover of the Salt Lake Tribune. And it's a color picture. And man, people were getting real, especially with the women and Especially back then, this is like the primordial days when John McCain was trying to get it banned. They were calling it human cockfighting. They were saying it's excessively brutal and it's inhumane and all this stuff. But uh, it, it, so the new president, Merrill Bateman, he calls me on the carpet and oh. he says, uh, you know, what you did is uh, not what we're about here at BYU. And you can keep your job, but you can't you can't keep fighting like this and this this thing, this sport. And or you can keep fighting and you can quit your job, but you can't do both. And I had three kids and they needed health insurance. So I kept my job and 
that was the only fight I had. Okay, so look, on the positive side, I'm an optimist here. You are 100%. One I'm, for one. I'm one for one, yeah. That's perfect. It doesn't get better. <laughs> Undefeated. <laughs> Undefeated right there. So I'm telling you, you are a world champion. So there you go. Yeah, th th that is just so interesting because my wife – Years ago, uh, she said that one of the things that attracted her to me, uh, she, she said, you were not a pasty face. And so many of the Mormon men are pasty faces. And I asked her to explain that. And she said, well, she said, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but you can always tell a Mormon man to 90% accuracy because... Unfortunately, he looks like a wimp. You don't get any sun. Yeah, uh, you you don't you don't have a chest. You, you know, she said they they demasculinize you, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. So I can just imagine here comes Mark Schultz <laughs> to BYU. Now tell us what you did for the BYU wrestling program. I mean, yeah, they probably didn't appreciate your fighting and 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 all that in that ultimate fight, but what you did with the program was pretty dang awesome. Yeah. We, when I took over as the head, I was the assistant coach from 1991 until 1994 for Alan Albright. He was a great guy, by the way. And uh, I, then he, he, he told me, uh, you know, Mark, uh, I'm going to leave. They're, they keep threatening to drop wrestling here. And I don't, I want, I want to move on to something else. And if they don't drop it, I can set it up so you can take over as the head coach if you want. And I really wanted to, because when I first got to BYU, I thought that was the greatest campus ever. I was, I arrived on campus. It's got the Y mountain in the background. Yeah. I it's see, a beautiful setting. Oh, uh, it's incredible. And the and I'm and I see this eight point mule deer walking right between the Smith Fieldhouse and the Richards Building. I was like, eh, "This is the greatest campus on earth. I gotta have a wrestling camp here." So I'm thinking, if I can take over, I could start wrestling camps and make a lot of money. But it turns out BYU is the only school in the country that runs all its own camps, so I never got to do that. But uh, the first guy that I met on BYU's campus, I I I. Kind of leery of Mormons, and I didn't, you know, really trust them. I didn't know much about them. And I asked this guy, Hey, are you Mormon? He's, Yeah. He goes, I go, I go, Why'd you come here? He goes, Well, to tell you the truth, I came here to wrestle. I was like, Oh, really? Well, I'll probably see you around then. I'm Mark Schultz. And he got so embarrassed because he knew I caught him in a lie because he knew I was never going to see him. Anyway, I went to the athletic department and uh, looked up a brochure for the wrestling program because I wanted to see who the head coach was so I could walk up to him like I knew already what he was and, you know, say, hey, how's it going, which is what I did. Hey, Alan, how's it going, you know? And we became really fast friends, and I just love that guy. And he set it up. He did exactly what he said. He left in three years. He set it up so that I would take over as the head coach. And when I took over – the first year, I couldn't do any recruiting because he left after the recruiting season. So we competed that first year. We took fourth out of five in the WAC conference. And then for the next three or four years, we kept taking third. 
And then our final year, we destroyed. I had three top 10 recruiting classes in a row. And on one, one of those classes was on my team the, my last year. And we destroyed everybody in the WAC by 30 points. And who knows how good we would have been if I'd had my other two recruiting classes back from missions. But we, we'd probably be in the top 10. Wow. Yeah, that's so you showed them your value, even though you showed them you were also a badass. <laughs> well, my wrestlers respected me, you know, and I, and I respected them. I mean, they were the number one academic team in the nation three times. And then, you know, they kept getting better every year. And yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that is awesome. Hey, look at this. Nathan Peterson said Mark had some amazing recruiting classes. Rocky Smart, you remember Rocky? Oh, yeah. Tell us about Rocky a little bit. Nathan knows him. Rocky won the Reno tournament, which is like a national tournament, huge tournament. There's like 60 guys in that tournament. Oh, wow. And I got him. I got his brother, Rangy Smart. And those two guys were like the cornerstone of, of my team for a long time. And the Aaron Holker, Aaron Holker was the first All-American BYU had in 13 years. And as a freshman, he became an All-American. And then they dropped the program and he transferred to Iowa State and won the NCAAs. Oh, wow. We could have had an NCAA champion on our team. Okay, so here's, here's the question, Mark. And you don't have to answer this if I'm treading on sacred ground. However, um, do you think why why would they drop the wrestling program when you had taken it up so high and elevated it in prestige? Uh, do you think part of that was that you actually did that ultimate fighting and that wasn't the image? they were looking for or is it something else or is it a mishmash of everything what do you well, think the, the i think it was a mishmash of a lot of different things um there was the fact that i don't think they really liked us that much i think we were kind of like but see we were really academically the greatest team in the nation and i mean these guys were really good kids man they were just Morally, you can't beat these kids, and and academically, you couldn't beat them. And they were getting to where you couldn't beat them in wrestling either. And they just cut the program too soon. I mean, we were on our way to, to greatness, and they just and I couldn't understand it because we had an all American wrestling athletic director, Rondo Felberg was the he was an all American wrestler for Fred Davis. Well, when 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 Alan told me he was going to set it up so I could take over as the head coach, he said, "Look, Mark, I can set it up, but I can tell you right now, they're not going to hire a non-member because they hired a non-member before me, and there was a, some kind of scandal or something, and they're not going to go with a non-member next time either." And so I kind of had to join the church in order to get the job. So I started looking. For these uh, evidences, to I could prove to myself scientifically that the Book of Mormon was true. And when I found, I was going to say, go to the Book of Mormon; it's got it all. <laughs> well, 
Well, when I found Cayenne. Sorry, I've always wanted to say something like that because everyone knows <laughs> that ain't accurate. <laughs> Well, when I found the chiasmus in Alma 36, that convinced me that there was no way Joseph could have made up that chiasmus. Of course, years later, you know, like four months ago, when I found out that it was all BS, I I, I learned that uh, there's chiasmus in Alice in Wonderland and View of the Hebrews and the late war and the first war of Napoleon and the Bible and just all these things. And, and I, then I thought, well, Joseph plagiarized the Book of Mormon. That's how it got in there. So anyway, uh, that's what convinced me to get baptized. And Alan baptized me. Oh. So I really had a great experience there. And I had great kids. But I also had a great experience with non-Mormons, you know. And a lot of the story that I tell about the non-Mormons is can be seen on that uh, UFC Fight Pass documentary that was just made a couple couple months ago. I'm looking forward to watching that. I know every a lot of people in the chat want to also, so that is also. Uh-oh, Boba Lever says something <laughs> blasphemous. There are also chiasmus in the books, 50 Shades of Grey. Oh, my gosh, you read those? <laughs> they are so risque, I didn't even dare pick the book up. Oh, RFM told him. Okay, well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, there's chiasmus, according to John DeLynn, in Dr. Seuss books, too. They are. Green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam. I am. I do not like them here nor there. I do not like them on my underwear. Oh, wait. Yeah. That's not how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, anyway, we've, got, was... we've got a genuine scholar here. Dan Vogel says Alma 36 is only chiastic in a very loose way, and, and he does have that accurate. When I believe it was uh, John Welch's work on the chiasmus in the Book of Mormon, he has pushed it the hardest uh, and the most convincing, but through time, just as you say, uh, chiasmus was also discovered to, to not quite be the bullet, the direct hit that that they thought it was. And I've got his book somewhere, Chiasmus in Antiquity. Yeah, this one. I'm going to get this book real quick. I'm going to pull a backyard professor with the world champion, Mark Schultz. This is backyard professor quality stuff right here, folks. John Welch edited oh, this book, Chiasmus in Antiquity, yeah. where he grabbed several different scholars in different areas, and they mentioned Chiasmus was in biblical Hebrew poetry. See, the big deal with Chiasmus, as you remember, is it's Hebrew poetry. That's right. And so this shows that it's an ancient Hebraic book, just like Nephi and Lehi were ancient Hebrew. Right. That right. makes sense. But right. there's also chiasmus in Ugaritic, in Sumero-Akkadian, in Talmudic Agadic narrative, in the Book of Mormon, there's in the New Testament, and there in the ancient Greek and Latin literatures. So it's not just Hebrew. So that uh, this book actually kind of undercut what Welch was trying to accomplish. And I think he came to realize that later when someone showed him the chiasmus in Dr. Seuss and elsewhere. So, Well, you know, so, when I 
first found chiasmus, nobody told me about the Maxwell Institute or farms or any of that stuff. And oh. I, as soon as I found it, I latched onto that. Like, a, like, a, you know, that was what I was, I had to find something to convince myself to join. And that was the thing I latched onto. And, you know, it, nobody had told me any of this other stuff. And then after I started talking about chiasmus to all these different people, it seemed like word spread or something. I'm not saying it happened it word because of me, because it was John Welsh, you know, he formed farms and everything and he found chiasmus. He, but that, it, it was, it was really, uh, I'm amazed at just how much chiasmus is used now compared to how little it was used when I found it. Right. Right. Well, Dan Vogel also says it's in the Doctrine and Covenants all over the place. Well, you know, it's in English language. The way we speak, the way we tell stories, we start off and we get to this point. And then in order to expand that story out, we start telling the same story either again or in reverse to make the same point. And it just happens naturally, I think. That's just my opinion. No, I, I, I think that can easily be demonstrated. Dan's one of those who've been, who's been showing that among, uh, I know Brent Metcalf did too, uh, quite often. And him and Dan have edited several books together on all kinds of fun Mormon subjects. But, uh, yeah. so when was it that you joined the church? What year? It was September 22nd, the day Joseph found the plates, 1991. Ooh, 1991. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just telling you. First, they were gold plates. Then they became golden plates because they realized the story Joseph Smith gave of running through the truck and through the forest with 60 pounds of gold under his arm and fighting off attackers and all is pretty steep to grasp. Even for a world class champion wrestler, that'd be tough for you to do. Yeah, I don't think Joseph. Yeah thought that through very well in his no. so now mm -hmm. they come up with this idea that maybe it was Tumbaga that had a gold appearance you know the apologies constantly find stuff so very yeah. very interesting uh, Vogel also says in 19th century books on rhetoric it's called Antimetabole I, I know I didn't pronounce that right so I'm a big fan of Dan Vogel Oh, me too. I've had him on the show many times, and I'll have him on the show many more times like I'm going to with you. And I'm a big fan of RFM. And Everybody's Yeah, him and John DeLynn. These guys are uh these guys are my rock stars. I owe my I owe my comeback to RFM. He interviewed me a year and a half ago or so, and he's been lamenting it ever since, and I've been having a ball. <laughs> Yeah. He's, fun. He's fun to co-host with, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, see, Dan's laughing. I did pronounce it wrong. Dang it, I hate it when that happens. So, um, Mark, your life your life has been, you've had, I mean, all of us do. I, I, I get that. We've all had ups and downs. We discovered talking on the phone the other day that uh, uh, we're both the same age. We both came up through the same political era, religious era, American history era. And uh, we both had older brothers named Dave 
and yeah. both of our older brothers have died yeah. in tragic circumstances. Um, but, but your story is especially uh, poignant to me because there's such a, it's just a tragedy that we actually don't even still to this day quite understand why. Mm, yes. You know, that's the tough question, isn't it? Yes, there's no motive proven at the trial, but I have my own theory, and that is uh, Dave was, uh, Dave was, I think what happened was Dave was, he was training for the next Olympics, and he was getting so much respect and admiration, and DuPont just was so jealous of Dave's respect and admiration. Not only that, but he was also best friends with Valentin Jordanov. Dave taught himself to speak Russian, and Jordanov couldn't speak English. So he's only person he could speak to was Dave. So he was jealous of Dave's relationship with Valentin, and Dave was killed on January 26th, Valentin's birthday. And I think I, that I had something to do with it. Oh, so this DuPont, now who was DuPont? inherited all of DuPont's money after he died in prison in 2010. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. interesting. So this DuPont character, um, he was the one who shot your, your brother. Mm -hmm. Now, why was he involved with DuPont? Well, he wanted to keep competing. He was a... a well, when, after we graduated from college, we went to Stanford and we coached there for a couple of years. And then the year that I win the world championships, I come back to Stanford and the coach fires me. I'm the only world champion in America. And, and they fired you? The day I get back. And now what am I going to do? I have no health insurance, no place to train, no vehicle to drive. And just, I didn't know what to do. And DuPont had called my brother asking him if he would come to Villanova to be his uh, his assistant coach. And so Dave said, I can't because I just committed to Stanford for another year because the guy that fired me gave my salary to my brother. And so I went to Villanova instead. And I... It was not, I was not anything that I thought it was going to be. He lied to get me there. He said he wasn't going to have anything to do with the program. But after I got there, he started coming around more and more. First, he wasn't there at all. And then he started coming around. And then he started coming around more and more and more. Pretty soon he's there every day. He was either drunk or on drugs. He would not shut up. He wasting all my time. And I just really regretted going there in the first place. And so... But I didn't have anywhere else to go. And I grew up in the, well, you, you and I both grew up in the Vietnam era. So I saw people come back from Vietnam pretty screwed up. And I didn't want to, I didn't think the military was an option for me. So I didn't really know where to go. And even though, even though my name is big in wrestling, there's Title IX is wiping out all these programs across the country. I mean, it's like, do before the sun. I mean, it's just 
we had, we had 470 programs, I think, when I was competing, and now there's only 70. So I it's it's anyway. So it was very it, and politics plays a part in it too. You know who you know, who your friends are. You know that's how I got the job at BYU. So when I left uh, when I left Villanova, I went to BYU, and uh, I. Okay. I became an assistant coach to Alan Albright. But there's a lot more stuff that went on at Villanova and Foxcatcher that you can't even imagine. I mean, it's just so Dupont is the one. He he was he, he was actually what what Dave was working for Dupont, right? That's right. in wrestling. Yeah, he was coaching. And he's competing for Team Foxcatcher. I went to there to get the job at Villanova. And part of the deal was I had to wrestle for Team Foxcatcher during the freestyle season. And, but when and there was no facility to, to train there. And I, he lied to me. He said that they were going to turn this Butler Annex building into a big wrestling facility. And they never did. And so, there was no place to train. There was nobody to train with. It was a terrible situation. And so I left and my brother came on board two years later after they had built this training facility on DuPont's estate and they dropped the Villanova program. And now it was just a freestyle program called Foxcatcher. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So, so now I watched that movie Foxcatcher. They they had to uh, they kind of had to shrink up the time element. They in the movie to make the movie work. I guess they they made it look like both you and Dave were there at Foxcatcher at the same time. But, yeah, we were never there at the same time. And I don't like that movie. And I don't like the director that that made that movie because I couldn't understand why he was putting all these scenes in the movie and. When I it was supposed to be based on my autobiography. I have a New York Times bestseller autobiography. It's called Foxcatcher. And he used that to create this movie, but he changed it so much that you can't even recognize it. The book and the movie aren't even you you, you can't tell how he got that movie from my book. But he is quoted in the Washington Times as saying, My intention from the beginning is to disrespect and demean Mark Schultz. And everybody asks me, why would he do that? All I can tell you is he's an asshole. There are just some people you can't please, I guess, you know. He must have been jealous. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That's how it works. But I was played by Channing Tatum, who was People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive, which is the only person they could find to play me. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I actually thought the actors did extremely well in the They movie. did. I had read several reviews of it where you had uh, taken exception with the way they portrayed you and on and on. So I wanted to at least touch that with you and, and see uh, what the heck were they thinking? If you read my book, you'll get the truth. If you want the truth about that story, it's in my book. And it's called Fox Catcher. Yeah, I didn't want, I don't like that name, but my publishers wanted to take advantage of the publicity around the movie. So that's why they named it that. That makes sense. That's what publishers do. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's how they do it. So uh, let's see. What else did I want to cover with you? What yeah, else do you want to? What else do you want to tell us about you that's so unique? Oh, hey, we could uh, – one thing uh, I noticed in your fight is the power of your arms. Your arms look very strong in that fight. But that was a few years back, right? Now that I'm fat and sassy, you're not fat and sassy. You're still powerful, right? However, however – my claim to fame for being a, a tough guy other than my B.O. is one time I went to work and I, I was just in a bad mood. I was going through a divorce and I was just livid. I wasn't doing dealing well with the customers and my boss, who was my wife's best friend. That's how I got introduced to my wife. She said, get your butt in the back room and you do push-ups till you calm down. And I said, <laughs> Oh, dang, that's going to be a while. She said, I don't care. And I asked her, do I get to stay on the clock? She said, hell yes, get out of here. You're ruining the customer <laughs> relations. So I went back and in a two-hour period, I did 1,101 push-ups. Wow. And I mean, my elbows hurt for a month after that, you know, but that's how mad I was. Did you find that? before let's say before a match or whatever would how would you what kind of mindset would you put yourself in so that you knew i'm gonna go out here and i'm gonna beat that guy i'm gonna beat my opponent how did you deal with your psychology that's what i'm asking you for your matches well fortunately I was born into the same family as the greatest high school wrestler in history and the Olympic and world champion, Dave Schultz, who was my workout partner for years and years. And true, I knew if I could beat Dave, I could beat anyone. So I had a lot of confidence. And uh, there's a lot of different strategies and techniques that wrestlers use to win. You know, a lot, there's a lot of technique involved. A lot of people think it's like brute force or just strength or something. It's not. It's a combination of every athletic ability you can imagine, you know. And it's it, yeah. it's really um, – people think that Dave and I are very different, you know, because he's built very different than I am. But he's really very strong. But we're actually very similar. You know, a lot of people think that – and, and it's true. Dave really did change the whole paradigm of the sport of wrestling. He made it a much more technical sport than it is now. Because yeah. back when I started and he started, it was just kind of pure conditioning. Conditioning is what wins in wrestling. Technique is important in gymnastics because if you miss the high bar by a millimeter, you break your neck. But in wrestling, conditioning is what wins. And, and, oh, and so he was constantly... We were constantly trying to survive in an environment that was pushing our conditioning to the limit every single day. We're just pushing ourselves as hard as we can. And it's just, and, but Dave took the techniques of wrestling and he made it a much more technical sport. And people would look at Dave and he'd be beating these NCAA champions and world champions. And he doesn't look that much like a wrestler. And they're like, how is he doing this? And so they think it must be the technique. 
So he became like legendary for his technique, like the greatest technician in American history. And I wasn't. So there you go. But you had the best workout partner. I did. That is so cool. That's awesome. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And you had good, what I call stick to itiveness. It's a yes. pretty long word, but, you know, don't ask me to spell it. I could, I guess, on the screen if you wanted me to. So, so okay. We get to the point to where I've been trying to lead up to, because from my point of view, this is what, uh, well, this is why I, I do these, these videos and podcasts, is because of the issue with our lives being so... Uh, involved, I'll say involved with the church simply because of the culture that well, you were born into it. And I was born into it. You're a convert. You had no chance. <laughs> right? You want a miracle? I have a miracle too. So why, what was it that you, you're no longer Mormon. What was it that kind of changed your approach why was, are you a mormon anymore i guess tell us your story about your involvement with mormonism and then why you have stopped yes um my best friend uh who will remain nameless uh told me a story about how he got the west nile virus and he went he had a near-death experience and he went to the void the Mormons call it outer darkness, I guess. Um, I don't know. It, it was just all black, no light. Just He said it was like just a, the most frightening thing you could possibly imagine. He's like, take your worst fear, multiply it times a billion. He said it became, he became fear himself, itself. And when he got out of that experience, he just read the Bible like crazy. And you know, he, he got to the point where he was like quoting all these Bible verses to me all the time. And I'm sitting here listening, going, yeah, I was just amazed at how he can memorize all these Bible verses. And finally, one day I asked him, why don't you read the Book of Mormon again? Because he comes from a very long line of members. And, you know, his grand great grandfather was like the first guy in, in his in his area. You know, like anyway, if I tell you where he's from, you'll figure out who it is but so, anyway he, he he when he told me uh i when he, he i said why don't you read the book of mormon he goes he, he goes why and i said well it's scripture right he goes, <laughs> he goes yeah but it's not true and i just was like what are you i, I couldn't believe it i was he just me when he said that and I I said what do you mean why isn't it true he goes because there's a doctrine in the church that says if you don't get married in an LDS temple you lose your kids in the afterlife not only do you lose your kids in the afterlife but you become a single ministering servant angel 
and serving the people that have been through the temple. And I said, there's no way that's true. He goes, yeah, it is. And I looked for it. He didn't tell me where it was, but I took the information and I Google searched it. Couldn't have done this in 1991, but um, I Google searched it and I found DNC 132 and I read it very meticulously and I saw the dark side of that doctrine and I was out like that. Interesting. So now was your friend was your friend Mormon also, right? Yes, his whole life. He was born into it, just like you. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So, so he told you the reason I, I don't read the Book of Mormon. And so therefore he he actually brought out that would be uh the doctrine of uh the polygamy the, doctrine. Poly, yeah, yes. yeah. The, the, most people don't see a lot of people think that doctrine is only about polygamy. It's not. The worst part about it is you lose your kids in the afterlife unless you go through and get married in a Mormon temple. Well, you can't go through and get married in a Mormon temple unless you pay all your tithing and serve your calling and do all these 140 things that kill yourself to get through the temple. I was like, there's no way. There's no way. That's that's. They, they, um, they only had you doing 140 things? You got <laughs> <laughs> the Jews have 633 laws or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's a good point. The uh I, I think at one point once I realized as an apologist I was defending the indefensible and I I threw it over that way. Uh the implication that all of the psychology of the, of the threats, because there is an inherent threat in there, isn't there, Mark? There is. You're going to lose your family. That that can be psychologically terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I had a friend tell me a story. She said. I, I was sitting in my house one day and these Mormon missionaries came to my house and they knocked on the door and I let them in and they said, hey, you want to learn uh, more about this church? And she's like, yeah, tell me about it. And they start their sales pitch and they go, did you know you can be with your family forever? She goes, yeah, I know. I believe that already. And that pretty much killed their sales pitch. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. The yeah. Church, this is what the church does. They don't, it's a backhanded, uh, sneaky way of getting you in and then using your family against you by saying, if you don't do these things, we're going to separate you from your kids and your family. Yeah. And, Honestly, just man to man, is there any other way to see that except just pure heinous? Yes, it's ugly. It's really it's, ugly. It's evil. Ugly. Evil, there's the word. Yeah. Um, and see, this is why, I mean, Radio Free Mormon and myself and uh, John DeLynn and Nemo the Mormon now and, yeah. and 
Rebecca Biblioteca, all of my wonderful yes. friends out in the podcast world, Steve Pineker of Mormon Book Reviews. We are we are trying to explore options that convince people that the power, the light, the love, the self-worth is already here. Now, you would have had to have had that as a wrestler. Yeah. But you can also have it as a human being. Yeah. Eh, when it's involved with religion and, and all that stuff, right? Would I be wrong in saying it that way, you think? No, that's that's true. Uh, Brent Williams gave me a compliment. I'm going to post it because I'm vain, but thank you, Brent. Yeah, defending the indefensible is a great term. That, that, uh, yeah, here's Nate, here's Nathan Peterson, our, our good friend Nathan Peterson here. Nice family you got there. Shame if anything happened to it. He's yes. got a fault, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding. That's Mormon church in a nutshell. Yeah, and, and that's. I think because of the information age, uh, that's biting them somewhat. It is. They can't get away with it now. We're in the information age. I couldn't have done any of this research in 1991 when the internet came online. But, you know, 2022, it's everywhere. It's going to affect the Mormon church a lot. They're, they're, they're experiencing a massive exodus from the church right now. And they're yeah. getting on and they're making these ridiculous claims of how it's still growing and all this stuff. <laughs> well, and again, it's just like that. Uh, I just posted a video this morning on the suppressed 1831 revelation. There's a certain type of image that they feel they have to portray. And so there's some parts that they'll keep out. There's other parts they'll allow in only if they can change it up a little bit to make it a little bit more glorious than it is, et cetera. Yeah, it's like the, the all the versions of the first vision. Every one of them gets a little bit more embellished, a little bit more miraculous. The more people question Joseph Smith's authority, the more miraculous and embellished each new first vision version becomes. Yeah, was that a, was that a big issue with you also, that first vision one? No, but it just, you know, confirmed it's what I already money. knew, that yeah. it was all BS. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that add to the dog pile. Yeah, my big one was the uh, the Book of Abraham. Well, yeah, that's my big one, too. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. See, we're more alike than you think, even though I know. We're, we're like way more handsome and way stronger. <laughs> <Yeah>. It sucks. <laughs> no. <laughs> The other one, I, I've got a bad confession to make, but I'm going to make it because I suspect there are, there actually, this may actually apply to some apologists in Mormonism right now if they ever bother to watch this. Uh, the other big one for me, now, as an apologist, I read uh, Richard Van Wagner's book, uh, Mormon Polygamy History. And that book just mortified me as an apologist. I actually had to go get hold of a, a scholar friend of mine and ask him, uh, what do I do? That I, I had no idea that after, after the manifesto happened, Wilford Woodruff received his revelation, ceased polygamy. 
I had always just naively assumed, okay, well, the Lord has spoken through his prophet, so everybody quit polygamy. Well, everybody did quit polygamy except all of the church leaders. Right. And I'm going, what the hell? This can't be right. So I went and asked a friend, and he he actually pointed me to some other articles and pointed, and, and I said, whoa, 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 I, I, I can't have, yeah, they actually went down into Mexico and just kept right on living polygamy, man, for several years, over a decade. And that just, so as an apologist, I said, I, uh, I, I'm not ready for this. I'm going to stick with the book of Abraham. So the first thing I did, once I recognized really, truly the gig is up, can't defend this stuff anymore because of Robert Rittner in the book of Abraham and yeah. that magnificent 13 hour interview that John Delenn with our dear friend, radio free Mormon here in the chat. They did that interview with Robert Rittner and my other very good friend, dear friend, Dan Vogel, whose book I have right there, uh, book of Abraham apologetics. Well, yeah, once no getting out of that. Out, then I began reading about polygamy and there's three or four books out there that not even the great Brian Hales Mormon apologist has refuted, nor can he take away the impact of the, I mean, how do I word this polygamy thing? Disaster. It was always done in secret. There was nothing but lies. It, it, it's all a, it's all an image. It's all ego building for the man, and it destroys the woman's self worth. That's Todd Compton's in Sacred Loneliness. Once the husband dies, the poor wife is just thrown out in the pasture like an old cow and and worthless. And I mean, it's a horrible situation that it puts everyone in there's no well carolyn pearson has a new book on the not new but new on polygamy so that that one sealed the deal for me yeah i could see how a lot of members would stay in this church even though they might realize that it's based on a foundation of lies because every week somebody gets up and tells their wife for them they are subservient to their husband. And husbands like that. <laughs> right? I, I, I am so... Oh, thank you, Jewel Brown. I want to acknowledge that super chat. Thank you for your donation. I appreciate that. Good to have you on the show. Uh, what We're am I... Put your tithing into BYP. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm not going to require 10% on the gross or the net. You, whatever's comfortable for you, I, I do appreciate it. I promise I will continue to try to bring excellent guests like uh, Mark Schultz on. So, yeah, this, uh, this theme of uh, constant intimidation with the idea that it benefits the church, but once you've lost your usefulness, yeah, the church really gets in the middle of your relationship with God. They're like running interference, you know, like you got to get through us to get to him, you know. And yeah. It's really, you know, Jesus never formed a church. He never required anything of us. All we have to do, we don't even have to believe in him. We're all saved because of his sacrifice. We... We don't need, as long as we don't reject him, we're all saved. 
And we're not going into some stratified form of heaven where we're going to be serving somebody in the celestial kingdom while we're these castrated ministering servant angels. <laughs> they call that TK smoothie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what a horror! It's a horror show. Yeah, yeah. Why people like you are so afraid of the Mormons is what Byron Rodriguez. Why people like you are so afraid of the Mormons? I'm not quite sure what you mean. I'm. We're not afraid of the Mormons. We actually feel sorry for them, if that's what you're trying to hint at. So, it's it's all good. Um. It's love the people, hate the church. Just That's like, right. Just the like the are, I love the Mormon people, actually. I I, I'm thinking of moving back to Utah because I really had a good experience. Because Dylan, of I would love to get together with you and have some barbecues, brother. That would be yeah. awesome. I'm a pretty decent cook when it comes to the grill. My wife is a sensational cook when it comes to the oven. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying, I've been very blessed that way, but. That's why Utah's yeah. economy is so strong because the church and the people they're they dominate. You know, the, whatever place they move to, they dominate because they're a very closed society, and they, you know, they they're very politically powerful because they're like a voting block. And I mean, not exactly nowadays, but in the early days they were. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. The more Utah is a nice place. It's beautiful. Oh, it is. Beautiful state. Absolutely gorgeous. I was down to St. George at the Thrive a couple of weeks ago, and that country down there is just so incredible. And uh, the mountains, I love I love that drive. Once I get up over the Malad Pass and I start going down into Utah and you cross the valley past Tremont and, and you get toward Ogden and that great, big, wonderful Wasatch front of mountains all the way down, all the way down into Provo and then down to South... Those mountains are so gorgeous. I love that drive. So, yeah, I <laughs> my kids RFM says it backwards. I love the Mormon church, but I hate the members. <laughs> oh, no. okay, RFM. I'm glad I'm not either. So, yeah. And, and there you go. Dan Vogel has a good point, too. I love the Mormons, although they can be irritating as hell. Yeah. Good point. That's true. But but then so can we. I've had people say I'm even irritating. Me, the backyard professor, irritating. Can you believe that? I've had people say that. So there you go. <laughs> so, hey, uh, do you guys in the chat, my lovely, wonderful audience, uh, do you have any questions for the world champion, Olympic champion, NCAA champion, U.S. Open champion wrestler, Mark Schultz, that you'd like to ask. Type them all in caps, if you would. Uh, I don't have a call-in number, Boba. Uh, I wish I did, but I don't. I'm not quite set up that way like Mormonism Live. Otherwise, I would have you call in. So... Yeah, yeah. Jesus said, love the sinner, hate the sin. LDS have it backwards. Good point, Jewel Brown. Oh, hey, here you go. Doug Vincent has a good question. It's a great question. What is Mark doing now? What are you doing now, Mark? I have uh, my own business where I I run wrestling camps and jiu-jitsu seminars all over the world. And uh, 
I also do appearances and public speaking engagements at, you know, events and, uh, you know, other other things. But, uh, yeah, that's what I do. Wonderful. Awesome. So you are building up people. Yes, teaching them how to defend themselves. Awesome. I am too, just from the makeup using the yeah, yeah. You're helping them use yeah, me a lot. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, here we go. Here's another one, Boba Lover. Mark, have you seen Avatar 2 yet? No. I haven't either, but I want to. Yeah, no kidding, right? Doug Vincent says that is very cool. And it is very cool. Mark Sense. That's called Mark Sense, yes. So any other questions before we head off into the sunset for this time? Oh, well, that's nice. Mark you know Sense. Mental yeah. yeah, what would you uh, go you ahead? Know what I want to do uh, next time, or maybe you know, this time, but we can, I don't know, let's we'll do this tomorrow if you want. But uh, I have a bunch of uh, things, uh, reasons why, evidence why I left the church, and uh, it's kind of like you know, the Fawn Brody, no man knows my history kind of stories. That kind of stuff, you know, and it's, you know, the, the main reason I got out was because of the uh, the doctrine of losing your kids. And then the book of Abraham was just more uh, just solidified, you know, my decision. I knew because of Robert Rittner basically translating the papyrus and, you know, Joseph Smith saying, you know, that, I mean, facsimile three, you can't get out of it. It's Joseph Smith ties facsimile three into the Book of Mormon, Abraham it, and says that the hieroglyphs above Osiris say this, but they don't, which means... What is the name of the king? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So it, so that proves Joseph is not a translator like he claimed, proves he's a liar. And if he's a liar about that, he's a liar about being a prophet, seer, and revelator also. And having said that, I, I want everybody to know I really do love the Mormon people. I think they're very hardworking people. They're pretty moral. You know, relatively speaking, I mean, my wrestlers were about the most moral people I've ever met. And it was a good experience for me. And, you know, I'm not here to tear down the church or anything, but my religion has always been the same truth. Whatever I think is true, that's my religion. And, you know, I thought that Mormon church was true for a long time. And now I know it's not. Yeah. 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 Uh, here we go. We have a request together. You and me, brother. Brent Williams, you should do an entire broadcast of the indefensible things we are forced to defend as Mormons. Mark and I will be back, and we will do that. That would be a fun podcast to do, wouldn't it, Mark? It would. I've got pages and pages of notes. 
yeah, I want to look into those. Okay, we'll do it. We'll commit right here that we're going to do that one. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what? <laughs> here this is we just go. A preview. What, what wrestling techniques are more suitable to protect people from LDS exploitation? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to steal one from FR, uh, RFM. The 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 Russell M. Paul Nelson. There you go, right? And here's another one for us from Boba Lover. Newton Lemnos, that would be the drop kick. <laughs> <laughs> There's the defense technique. Kick him uh, in the nuts. <laughs> yeah, and Dan Vogel. Apologists have nothing but poor excuses. Isn't that interesting, though, that, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with Dan Vogel, but isn't it remarkable that uh, when we were on the inside looking out, we really didn't grasp that those were actually excuses? No, no. I, it, it is really a, a, the most just fascinating phenomenon this, the Mormon church and the fact that they have controlled such a large section of the United States and converted so many people. And it's not surprising that, you know, people like me and you and all these other people are getting drawn into it because it's, you know, Brigham Young really was an incredible pioneer. I mean, Joseph Smith might have built the biggest city in Nauvoo, but Brigham Young settled Deseret. It's almost as big as Alaska. And you know, I there's no other phenomenon like the Mormon Church. It's it's a once, it's a unique phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Very good point. RFM says he's honored right now. Well, we're honored that you're here, so that you can be honored, even in the chat and from us too. So that's the way it is. Yeah, and. Uh, who else? Oh, there we go. For each apologetic, for each indefensible apologetic, teach a defensible submission. That's <laughs> I love that. Nice wrestling term, Nathan Peterson. Nathan's a wrestler. It. What's that? Nathan's a wrestler. Yes, he is. Yeah. He's a good one. Him and I are going to become very, very good friends. We have already started our journey together too, so I'm I'm really looking forward to that. So, well, uh, thank you everyone for all of your questions and for all of your comments. And uh, Mark Schultz, it's been such an honor to have you on my show, and I'm looking forward to having you back time and time and time again. We'll we yeah. will definitely be back with you. I think my audience has appreciated the um, oh. Here we go. One more plug. Thank you, Doug Vincent, another one of my dear friends. I've had him on the show, too. We did the Erie Canal. Everybody needs to watch BYP's podcast on the 1831 polygamy revelation. You'll see the mechanics about, oh, yeah. Thank you, Doug. That that means a lot to me because that was the intention. Now, granted, that podcast is a little longer, but yeah, that's the idea. Newton Lemnos is clapping like crazy for you, Mark Schultz, as I am. We do appreciate your time. I know it's very important to you, and so we appreciate you taking your time. Is there anything else you would like to close out with by way of comment? or? Yes. Um, I didn't really uh, – I did a lot of research for this podcast, but and I've had all these notes, but 
I didn't want to interrupt the spontaneity or anything by having to refer to notes and reading. Nobody wants to listen to me read or anybody read, really. So I just thought I'd put those two aside. But I have a lot more about uh, these truth claims that I haven't even brought up yet. As a matter of fact, stuff that I've learned just recently, just today, that I, I, I'd like to bring up that I think people would find interesting. And, and we will, because I am going to be thrilled to bring you back on the show and we will explore those in depth together. I think my, my audience is saying right now, um, uh, that they want you back and we will, we will have you back. Dan Vogel says, stay cool, Mark. Absolutely. Um, Thanks, Dan. Now I'm being told, Hey, BYP, when, do you want to do mission stories in Rick's BYU horror stories? Yes, Nikki McBee, you are the one that commented to me. Yes, we will get together and do that too, Nikki. Absolutely. Stay gold, pony boy. Pony boy? Uh-oh, that's a saying. That's a saying from a movie or something. I don't get the reference to you. I'm like Bill Real. RFM is so fabulously talented and deep within that. Yeah, Doug and do it so we are we will so thank you for all your support you've been an awesome audience again mark thank you very much we are going to close out for now and we do appreciate all of the love and support uh i can't think of anything i would rather say than i love you brother and i'm looking forward mm -hmm. to co-hosting some more podcasts with you 